Please turn with me to Colossians chapter 1 as we conclude this hymn of praise to Christ in verses 18 through 20. Please join me in prayer. Oh, great God, forgive me for my poor efforts in attempting to list forth the praises of this blessed, infinite, and eternal God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Please open our eyes, O God, to behold the glory of this blessed Savior, to see that in Him and in Him alone is all the fullness of salvation for our every need for this life and the life to come. May this Savior be glorified in this service of worship, we ask in His precious name. Amen. Please rise for the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible Word. Colossians chapter 1, we'll begin reading at verse 15. This is God's Word. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. We come to the conclusion of this hymn of praise to Christ here in Colossians chapter 1. Just a couple reminders before we look at the conclusion in verses 18 through 20. Remember the problem that Paul is addressing. The church in Colossae was threatened with a false teaching known as the Colossian heresy. This Colossian heresy maintained that Christ was great, but he was not enough. According to this false teaching, The universe is filled with different kinds of spiritual powers, and you cannot achieve ultimate spiritual fullness unless you take all of them into account. You need to appeal to other cosmic spirit authorities to find spiritual fullness. Christ may get you somewhere in that journey to spiritual fullness, but he will not get you spiritual fullness. Christ is great, but he is not fully divine, supreme, sovereign, or sufficient. This was the Colossian heresy, and Paul wants the church to see the inexhaustible fullness that is theirs in Christ, plus no one else. Remember also the structure of this hymn. This famous hymn of praise to Christ in verses 15 to 20 can be divided into three sections, two main stanzas with a transition between them. We saw, first of all, stanza 1 in verses 15 and 16, the transition in verses 17 through 18a, first part of verse 18, and stanza 2, which is our focus now, is the rest of verse 18 through verse 20. By way of review, in verses 15 and 16, 
the first stanza, we saw Jesus Christ, God the Son, in his pre-existence. God the Son is the second person of the blessed Trinity. He is fully God in and of himself. As fully God, identical with the one divine essence, he is the uncreated creator of all things. He is not an exalted creature. He is infinitely exalted above creation because he is the creator. God the Son is Lord of creation. That was the first stanza. Verses 17 to 18a, the transition, we moved from seeing God the Son as God and as creator to seeing God the Son as redeemer. God the Son, we saw in that transition, he has ontological, absolute, timeless, eternal priority over all creation. We saw in verse 17, all things hold together in him. He is the personal principle that gives all creation in its unity and its diversity coherence and meaning. And it is this God, moving into verse 18, it is this God who is also redeemer. Without losing himself, he gives himself to redeem a church for himself. Without losing his self-contained deity, without losing his lordship over creation, God the Son has given himself in a special, man, special manner to a portion of his creation, his church, which is his body, and of which he is the head. God the Son is Lord of creation and redemption. That was the transition within the hymn. Which brings us to the second stanza, the remainder of verse 18 through verse 20. So as we have seen, God the Son is Lord of creation, but something has gone wrong with this creation. The first man, Adam, the created son of God, the first man, Adam, sinned against God and fell from God. And Adam's sin did not just impact himself, and Adam's sin did not just impact his posterity, all who descend from him by ordinary generation. Adam broke covenant with God and plunged himself into sin and misery. Adam's covenant breaking against God plunged all mankind into sin, into sin and misery as well. But not only did Adam's sin ruin mankind, Adam's sin also ruined mankind's environment. And so not only do sinners need a redeemer, but creation needs a redeemer as well. We need a redeemer who will reconcile us to God, and we need a redeemer who will set all creation free from its bondage to corruption and a Redeemer who will make all creation obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God, Romans 8, 18-23. As we have seen, God the Son is the Lord of this creation, but this creation is now in order of sin and death because of Adam's first sin. Thankfully, not only is God the Son Lord of this creation, He is Lord of the new creation a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells and where sin and all of its consequences are fully eradicated forever. So coming to the conclusion of this hymn, we see, first of all, God the Son, the beginning of the resurrection. God the Son, the beginning of the resurrection. This is in the remainder of verse 18. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, 
that in everything he might be preeminent. As we saw last time in the transition, verse 17 through the first part of verse 18, we are now looking at God the Son not as creator but as redeemer. We have shifted from creation to redemption, from the first creation to the new creation. We saw last time as we began looking at God the Son as Redeemer, that He is, verse 18, the head of the body, the church. Now here in the rest of verse verse 18, we see more clearly what it means that Christ is the head of His church. It is, as Paul goes on in verse 18, it is as the firstborn from the dead that Jesus Christ is head of His church. He is the risen head of His church. He is the exalted head of his church. He is the head of his church by the power of a resurrection, otherworldly, indestructible life, never to die again. This is not the first time in this hymn we've seen that Jesus Christ is firstborn. Look back in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Similar thought expressed here in verse 18 He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Firstborn, in both of those instances, is an important word that communicates uniqueness. Firstborn means special status, dignity, and rank. So, in creation, Jesus Christ as creator is first in rank and dignity with reference to that creation, verse 15. And Jesus Christ as Redeemer is first in rank and dignity with reference to his church, verse 18. So there is a similar kind of dignity and special status conveyed in each use of firstborn throughout this hymn. To say that Jesus Christ is firstborn is to say that he is the recipient of exceptional favor and blessing and status. This is one way the book of Colossians highlights the uniqueness and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Whether with respect to creation or with respect to redemption, Jesus Christ is highly exalted and supreme. Here in verse 18, we see how Jesus Christ occupies the highest rank and dignity with respect to his church. Christ is firstborn here in verse 18 in a special way. He has supremacy and authority as a firstborn over the dead. The dead here in verse 18 is plural. This is a reference to believers who have died, to dead believers. This means that Christ, being firstborn from the dead, the one who has supremacy over his people who have died in him, this means that firstborn here is a relational term, a relational title. Jesus Christ is firstborn in relationship to those believers who have died. This shows Christ identifies with his people. He has solidarity with his people, even in death. Even in death, Christ is united to his people, and his people are united to him. Not even death can sever that intimate, mysterious bond between Christ and his church. So this is a relational thing. But what more specifically is the nature of that relationship between Jesus Christ, the firstborn, and his people who have died? It is this, as firstborn from the dead, Jesus Christ is the beginning of the great end-time resurrection event. The resurrection has begun 
in Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Christ himself means that the age to come has already begun. That age being an age of eternal, heavenly, unlosable life in and with him. Christ's resurrection is the prelude to the general resurrection on the last day. This is very similar to how Paul speaks of Christ's resurrection elsewhere. Think of that great resurrection chapter in 1 Corinthians 15, especially verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. So firstborn from the dead in Colossians 1 is intimately related to the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep, 1 Corinthians 15. Think about the, the firstfruits. Christ as firstfruits shows the connection, the unity of Christ with believers. Christ is inseparable from believers, and believers are inseparable from him. The language of, of firstfruits is, is farming or harvest language. The firstfruits is the first portion of the entire harvest. The firstfruits is not just the first part of the harvest, it is representative of the entire harvest. Whatever happens to the first fruits happens to the whole harvest. So if the resurrection is a harvest, as Paul conceives of it in 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection is a harvest, Christ is the first fruits, the first one to be raised, the initial portion of the resurrection harvest, that means believers are the rest of that harvest to be raised at Christ's return. And so, yes, it is that Christ is the first resurrected man, but it is not merely that. It's not merely that Christ is resurrected first and we all come later. First fruits expresses connection, expresses unity. Christ is inseparable from believers, as inseparable as the first fruits is from the rest of the harvest. Christ's resurrection is the beginning of that resurrection harvest. So, to bring it to a point, because Christ and believers are inseparable in the resurrection, the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of believers are not two distinct events. They are two episodes of the same event. One harvest in two installments, Christ first, and then all who are in Christ yet to come. It is, and it, it is impossible to conceive that Christ would be raised and we would not be. We are inseparable with him in his resurrection. And Paul is saying the, the very same kinds of things here in Colossians as Jesus Christ is firstborn from the dead. Listen to how Richard Gaffin explains the significance of Christ's resurrection. With Christ's resurrection is given the resurrection of believers. You cannot have one without the other. As goes the head, so goes the body. Our head, Jesus Christ, has been raised. We all in union with him will surely be raised at his blessed return. He is the firstborn from the dead. We will certainly follow him into resurrection life because he has been raised from the dead. That also gets at how Christ is the beginning here in verse 18. Again, it is not merely that Christ is the first person to possess resurrection life bodily. Can't say it any better than Herman Ritterboss. What is intended is not merely that Christ was the first or formed a beginning in terms of chronological order, 
He was rather the pioneer, the inaugurator who opened up the way. With him, the great resurrection became reality. And very similar is the meaning of firstborn from the dead. He ushers in the world of the resurrection. So Jesus Christ has opened up the way to resurrection life. He possesses it. He also conveys it at that last day. As goes the head, so goes the body. As certainly as Christ is raised, just as certainly will you, believer, be raised in and with him. We are united to this risen Savior. We will be raised in and with this Savior at his return. This gets at how Jesus is the beginning of a new creation, a new order of things. Just as in the beginning, in the, all the way back in the absolute beginning, God created earthly life, so also now Jesus Christ is the beginning of heavenly life. In the beginning, Adam had very good life and lost it because of his sin. But now Jesus Christ is the beginning of the best life, of resurrection life, which can never be lost. Do you want to go back to the Garden of Eden to lower, mutable life with a, with a serpent slithering around, speaking lies into that holy realm? Or do you want to go to a new beginning, a new order of things, of unlosable, highest life, freed from any enemy intrusion? That is the kind of life, the highest and best unending life that Jesus Christ gives to us. He is the beginning of a new order of things. In the beginning, Adam was made in a world of earthly life, a world yet to be glorified. But as the new beginning, Jesus Christ brings his people into a new world of heavenly glorified resurrection life. Our Savior is supreme in his resurrection. He is our exalted and risen Lord. And as such, he is the beginning of that great event in which he makes his people to share in the very same resurrection life that he himself has. So is it any wonder then, verse 18, that in everything he, this risen Savior, might be preeminent? Well, we move on in the hymn to see, secondly, God the Son, the fullness. God the Son, the fullness. And this is verse 19. Here in verse 19, we have a translation issue. Verse 19 reads, For in him all the fullness was pleased to dwell. Some translations add, Of God, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. But what Paul says is, For in him all the fullness was pleased to dwell. Here is a direct attack, as if anything has been an indirect attack, but a more direct attack against the Colossian heresy. Paul is saying to this young church, taught this false teaching that you need to add to Christ. He's great, but he won't get you all the way there. You need spiritual fullness from other sources. Paul is saying in this direct attack in verse 19, you think you need to go somewhere else or just to someone else to find spiritual fullness? You think you can add even conceptually to Jesus Christ, that he is somehow insufficient? Think again. In him, all the fullness is pleased to dwell. Whether we're thinking from the angle of Christ's deity or from the angle of his redeeming work, 
Jesus Christ has all the fullness. Francis Turretin brings out both of those aspects, his, the, the, the deity of Christ and his redeeming fullness when, when he calls this fullness a fullness of the divinity, a fullness of office, a fullness of merit and graces. Now, if we're speaking of his deity, God the Son, Jesus Christ, is fully God. God the Son, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, partakes fully of the divine essence of himself. He's not get his divinity from the Father, he gets it of himself. God the Son is not God because of his relation to the Father. God the Son is God of himself. The one divine essence belongs indivisibly and fully to each of the persons of the Godhead, one divine absolute personality who subsists as three divine persons. Now, while all that is absolutely true, and we should be willing to die for it, the context seems to indicate that Paul is speaking rather of the redeeming fullness of Christ. The Colossian heresy denies that Jesus Christ is a fully sufficient Savior. This is true of all false teaching, isn't it? Is it, that it has a grain of truth. The Colossian heresy is, doesn't say, don't go to Jesus Christ. It says, go to Jesus Christ, but you're not going to find all you need in him. Paul is saying, no, it is in Christ and in him alone that you have all saving fullness for all of salvation, for every aspect of sin, for this life and the life to come. As Paul moves through this hymn, he affirms that, just to, to mention a few things, Christ is head of the church, firstborn from among the dead, beginning of a new world order of resurrection life, and is preeminent in all things as raised. He is nothing but fullness of saving life and blessing. He is and has all fullness of salvation as raised from the dead, as the exalted Lord and Savior. He is now in his resurrection, Romans 1 verse 4, declared to be the Son of God in power. It was in his resurrection that he was the Son of God as he, trans, as he went from the estate of humiliation to exaltation, the powerful Son of God, the Son of God in resurrection, life, and power. He was crucified in weakness, but he now lives by the power of God, 2 Corinthians 13, 4. It is as this risen Savior that Jesus Christ has all the fullness of redeeming grace. The false religions in or, or around Paul's day taught that you, you need to attain the fullness, and fullness could be attained by some, but not by all. But, but Paul here is denying that sort of stratification within the church as if there are super-Christians who can attain fullness, but weak Christians can't. Just to mention one aspect of fullness, look back at verse, verse 9 of Colossians 1. Chapter 1, verse 9, Paul uses the same kind of word he uses in verse 19. Verse 9, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled, similar to fullness, with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So fullness and growth in that fullness, being filled with that fullness, is the lot of all believers, not of some. All the saving blessings of God in Jesus Christ are for all who trust in him. 
from the youngest believer to the most seasoned saint. The Colossian heresy subjects Christ, puts Christ under an impersonal, abstract notion of fullness. But Paul says, no, Christ is the fullness. All of redemptive power and grace are in him and in nowhere else. It is Christ plus no one and nothing. In Christ is all saving fullness. Outside of Christ, there is nothing. There is no salvation, not even a speck. So stop wasting your time trying to supplement Christ. Stop dishonoring Christ, trying to add to him. Instead, go to him and draw from him. Think about what that fullness is. Do you need forgiveness of sins? There is fullness of redeeming grace in Jesus Christ. Do you need cleansing? There is abundance in Jesus Christ. Do you need to be brought near to God, feeling far from him? There is abundance in Jesus Christ. Do you need freedom from sin's enslaving power? That is found in Jesus Christ. Do you need freedom from a world order of death and sin? That is in Jesus Christ. Do you need a God-approved righteousness in God's court of law? That is found in Jesus Christ. Do you need help in temptation? That is found in Jesus Christ. Not in adding to him with some sort of therapeutic know-how. Do you find it hard to count it all joy when you suffer in various ways? That is found in Jesus Christ. Do you need help in answering false teaching in its various forms? That is found in Jesus Christ. Are you ashamed of something you've done? That is in Jesus Christ. The answer is found. Are you ashamed of something you've left undone? The answer is found in Jesus Christ. Are you ashamed of what has been done to you? The answer is found in Jesus Christ. Are you weary in need of strength to press on in this earthly pilgrimage to your heavenly destination? That is found in Jesus Christ. Do you need a new quality of life, heavenly resurrection life in the midst of this present evil age of sin and death? That is found in Jesus Christ. What we casually call the Sunday school answer is for Paul the fullness of all saving blessing for this life and the life to come. In Christ there is hope laid up for us in heaven, verse 5, verses 3 to 5, a share in the inheritance, verse 12, belonging to his kingdom, verses 13 and 14, and on and on we could go throughout Colossians, and we will, just to mention a few things, do you see something of the fullness of redeeming grace in Jesus Christ who is the fullness. Thirdly and finally, we see God the Son, the Reconciler. God the Son, the Reconciler. This is in verse 20. Through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Speaking of his fullness, another aspect of his fullness, reconciliation with God and peace with God. Reconciliation is one of the aspects of the redemption once and for all accomplished in the atoning work of Jesus Christ. For a great accessible but informative teaching on reconciliation, you can go for further study to John Murray's Redemption Accomplished and Applied. There, Murray says that reconciliation is needed because of disrupted relations between God and man. There is enmity between God and man because of our sin. 
Now, obviously, in our sin, we have an unholy enmity against God. But reconciliation deals with God's holy enmity, His holy hostility against us, that He is against us in our sin. And reconciliation, which He provides in and through Jesus Christ, restores right relationship beyond probation, beyond loss. This right relationship is a movement from hostility to friendship that cannot be lost. Enmity and hostility is replaced with peace. Peace with God in Jesus Christ, friendship with God that He reveals to those who fear Him, Psalm 25, 14. But you notice that Paul mentions more about this reconciliation. There is reconciliation that brings into view not just individuals, but the creation itself. This reconciliation with God is not just between God and individuals, it is between God and creation. We could call this, to summarize it, a cosmic reconciliation or the cosmic aspect of Christ's reconciling work. Richard Gaffin, in his, in his new book that came out uh, just this month, if you're looking for last-minute Mother's Day gifts in the fullness of time, a Richard B. Gaffin Jr. Gaffin says this, the reconciliation of sinners in Christ has a context, a cosmic environment that shares with them in their reconciliation. So this reconciliation in Jesus Christ is most certainly for individuals, for believers, for, for sinners who believe in the reconciling work of the Savior. However, salvation in Jesus Christ is most certainly not individualistic. We saw last time, at the beginning of verse 18, Christ is the head of his church. Christ is not the head of a collection of disjointed individuals. He's the head of a, of a unified organic body. The salvation that is for individuals is for those individuals as they are brought into the body of Christ, the church. And Paul takes us deeper here in verse 20 into this glorious reconciling work in Jesus Christ. To put it in summary form, not only is this salvation for a people, it is a salvation for a people in a place. Our salvation does not suspend us in a void, cut off from an environment, from a context. Rather, the fullness of our salvation involves one day being brought into God's presence into the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells, 2 Peter 3.13 in Revelation chapter 21. This is what Paul alludes to more fully elsewhere in Romans chapter 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. 
So this reconciliation will come to fullness, must come to fullness, when a holy God dwells with a holy people in a holy place. Now, don't misunderstand. You and I cannot gradually bring in this new world. We cannot gradually Christianize the world through evangelization or political maneuvering. This new world, this new creation, will come about at Christ's return, and Christ will bring it. And the creation will be just as passive, and it's being transformed into being a new creation as you and I were passive when he raised us from the dead and gave us newness of life. Also to misunderstand, this is not, as has often been taken, individual universalism in which all people are saved, all people without qualification. Actually, the final judgment in which the sheep are brought into, God, into God's presence and the goats are cast out of his presence, where there is perfect judgment, the final judgment is actually what makes for this cosmic reconciliation because all of God's enemies will be cast out into the lake of fire for all eternity for their sin so that God's people will dwell with him in that new and holy place purged from sin and all of its consequences. Again, that is the day when a holy God will dwell with a holy people in a holy place, free from sin and all its effects for all eternity. That will be the fullness of the reconciling work of Jesus Christ. As Herman Bobbing says, the liberation of the created world from bond, the bondage of decay, the glorification of creation, the renewal of heaven and earth, all this is the fruit of the cross of Christ. To come full circle with this entire hymn, Christ is the eternal and the absolute image of God, verse 15. Adam is the created and derivative image of God. Christ made all things in heaven and on earth. Adam plunged all things in heaven and on earth into sin and misery, decay, corruption, futility, and death. The visible heavens and the visible earth are under bondage to corruption because of Adam's sin. But what Adam, the created Son of God, did, Jesus Christ, the eternal and ultimate Son of God, came to undo. Adam, by his sin, made this entire world age one of corruption and death, but Jesus Christ, by his obedience, made a new creation, one of righteousness and life. Adam consigned this creation to, to futility, but Jesus Christ brings a new creation, a new heavens, and a new earth where righteousness dwells. I conclude with Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 30. Do those also believe in the only Savior Jesus who seek their salvation and welfare from saints, themselves, or anywhere else? No. Although they make their boast of him, Yet in their deeds they deny the only Savior, Jesus. For either Jesus is not a complete Savior, or they who by true faith receive the Savior must have in him all that is necessary to their salvation. Is this Jesus Christ to you, an all-sufficient Savior for time and for eternity for every aspect of your sin. Believe in him, receive of his fullness, live out of his fullness, go to him, 
for your every need. And may this exalted Savior be glorified in this place, in the church, throughout the world, until his blessed return. Amen.